then creating a dashboard that will provide managers with the information about how does a specific cultural value connect team members. Managers need to have data in order to make better people-related decisions. Hey there, this is Bev and you're listening to the People at Work podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Jotzel is the creator of an employee intranet and we like to think that we intranet differently. We hope that our intranet is actually helping reduce complexity in the workplace instead of adding to it. And while we're thinking about building different intranets, we're also thinking about ways of working and leading differently. And that's why we host the People at Work podcast and have conversations with people who are also thinking about ways of changing work for the better for people who are in those workplaces. So I'm really excited to be here today with my guest, Katerina Bole Carbonell. And Katerina is joining us from Europe today. She's uh, sitting in Ireland and uh, will be talking to us um, about a really interesting topic around connecting remote workers with culture and communication. So just a little bit about Katarina. She is a management researcher and consultant in Europe, researching and advising on team-related topics. She also teaches HR professionals about evidence-based decision-making, provides leadership advice and mentors on a pro bono basis, young female professionals in the data science field. Katarina has a special interest in the importance of analyzing communication patterns and cultural synergies among members of remote and distributed companies, which is why we're going to be talking today about how we actually connect remote workers and what role culture and communication plays. So welcome, Katarina. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Beth, for having me. Great. I think we've got a very interesting conversation ahead of us, and I'm really looking forward to digging in more to the, the data and analytics side of how do you actually connect uh, remote workers with uh, culture and communication. So perhaps you can just give us a, a quick overview of your, your background and, and how you came to be interested in this topic. Yes, of course. Um, I think we have to go back to my childhood where I, and I clearly remember this when I was teaching my youngest sister how to go up the stairs like a, like a grown-up and that kind of that sets the basis for my passion for professional de development so helping people become better at their work now most people nowadays don't work alone so you, we work in a team so if i would just focus on helping an individual become better at their own work I'm missing out on most of it. So that's why we need the team aspect on it. And it's actually the focus then became in how to help team members work better together with other team members. Because you might be very skilled at your own job. So you might have very good technical skills, but you need to interact with other people. And then, so I like data because I think data provides us the evidence with where a problem is. And um, if we want to improve something, we need to see a change in data. And that then it transcends in how I'm looking at teams, that there's this interaction happening. And if we know, if we can put a number to the interaction, then we can work on really improving it. It changes from a feeling about, oh, I think something is wrong and the collaboration could be better. I think there is a silo between these and these teams to I know there's a silo or I know if this team member leaves the company will actually have a huge problem so the passion started with my little sister and I think we need data to help managers make better people related decisions I love how you uh, bring a, a very sort of 
quantitative topic and you layer on this very human part of a, a special memory from your childhood with your sister that's that's a lovely story to tell so thank you for sharing that with us and that makes absolute sense right like um you you need both parts right like you need the feeling part and you need the data part in order to actually help people connect and relate better with one another so um maybe let's just probe a little bit around what you're seeing lately around uh, the state of remote work today. So what are you seeing in your research and in the, the people that you're working with? What are some of the, the biggest pain points that we're seeing right now around um, remote work? So I think there are three main pain points or things that, that I see or keep on hearing. And one is related to the people actually doing the work and it's the um, it's a fact that you can be lonely in a crowd. So you can work with your colleagues, you can chat with them on Slack, but you still don't feel connected. Um, and the solution to that is, uh, seems to be the co-working, seems to be going out into a coffee shop and working from a coffee shop. So at least you have the feeling of being around people. So where I live, I live in the Western part of Ireland. Island, which is a more rural area of Ireland, like everything happens in Dublin and the rest of the country is more or less forgotten. So we have more and more um, co-working places that exist now in small villages where they're trying to, on one side, trying to get employment, but on the other side, also giving people a chance to work together, even though they're living in a remote area. So the loneliness, that's one thing I see. And then um, it started more or less six months ago that I became more aware of it. The, um, legal pains of hiring remote worker who are residing in a different country that um, as your company doesn't have a legal entity in country B, if you want to hire people who reside in country B, do you hire them as freelancer and then add a second class employees because they're not full employees, they're just freelancers. How are you then dealing with social security benefits? If I'm now a freelancer and my company let like, fires me or lays me off for whatever reason, I don't get unemployment benefits because for the state, I'm a freelancer, I'm not an employee. Um, so then there are more and more employment agencies that actually try to solve this, trying to help remote workers be remote employees and not just contractors or freelancers. And then the third thing that I see is around the when you talk to remote companies, kind of the benefit is that, yeah, you can get talent from everywhere. Like you're not just restricted by your local community. You can hire somebody from the other side of the world. So there's a huge supply of talent, which also creates the, the problem of, you know, you get a huge amount of um, applications. So how can you then select the right people for your company? How can you make sure that you're not biased towards, you know, okay, people from Africa, they're not as skilled and Europeans because that's the way you have been taught in school. So how can you overcome the biases and how can you deal with the workload of getting um, application from across the world? So co-working to avoid loneliness, employment agencies so that you don't have second class remote workers and recruitment agencies so that you can find the right people wherever they are living. Well, thank you for that. And I guess one of the things that is present in remote working today too is just this challenge around actually connecting people who are not physically together in 
a workspace, right? And um, that's not new, but I'm sure that uh, companies and teams who are dealing with you know, 100% dispersed workforces or a portion of their workforce dispersed, they're dealing with the things that you've mentioned, but they're also dealing with this day-to-day need to keep people productive and working and connected and aligned with the business objectives and the, the team's objectives. So what are you seeing around the biggest challenges of, of connecting people that are not physically together? I think for some companies, the biggest challenge is going beyond the task-focused interaction. Um, in some way, like I, I know people for their work is work, and I don't need to have friends at work. But having friends, so people with who you feel an emotional bond makes work easier. There is more trust. So now if we're talking about psychological safety. So if you are... Um, if you're only focused on your task, so if leaders only focus that the team members get the task done, there might be um, greater reluctance to say, I did a mistake. So for that, you need to actually feel safe to say, you know, I screwed up here. Can we, um, we need to fix this, for example. So do you think that that is something that's common to or, or unique to Uh, remote work situations or is it just that it's harder to get that psychological safety when you don't have people who are working side by side day to day? First, I think it's generally undervalued by managers because it is harder to measure. You can't put a KPI on it, so you can't track it. So let's focus on the things that we're tracking. Um, Then it is the... um, the distance can make it harder because you, you'll have to understand that when I write something, the emotions that I attach to certain words are different than the emotions you attach to certain words. And for example, I, I'm, I'm working now on a team where we have a new team member. She's from Asia. I have a German background, but lived for a long time in the Netherlands. So I'm very direct and I know that. And when I work with Americans, I always say, I'm very direct, don't be offended. Just that's the way I'm talking. Um, so, but I know that when I would say something that she might be offended, even though I don't mean it. So we have to be aware of that and we have to make it. So what we are now doing is that we are, I'm explicit about that. This is what I don't like about your behavior, but keep in mind the words I am, picking are coming from a Dutch perspective and not from an American perspective. So please don't be offended. And if you're offended, and then I'm getting the other person in it to actually act as a mediator and say, you know, if I'm offending, please raise like wave a flag or something online so that I know I overstepped it and that I need to choose my words more carefully. So in this way, creating the psychological safety in an online or in remote companies requires an extra step from people. You really need to be aware of the words and you really need to be aware of the culture from other people and how they are communicating. You can't see from the face if they are offended. You can't, they might be talking less to you, but they might just be offline. You don't know that. So that makes it more difficult. So what does this mean for managers and team leaders who need to be, they themselves need to be more aware of this and trained to 
take note of this, but what pressure is there on managers to actually be uh, more powerful in terms of how they are helping their people stay connected? I think as a, as a leader then in a remote field or in a remote companies, especially if you have people from different cultures in it, you need to model more the behavior. You need to, with your communication style, so not, you communicate what, so you're talking to your team members, but you could also then explain why you're saying it in this way so that you are, you're behaving in a certain way through your communication and you're explaining your behavior, why you're doing this. And this way people can understand better. Okay. This is, um, this is the way I should be talking. If a person is from culture A compared to culture B. We're now going to the topic about helping people feel, you use the word connected. And I think you mean more than just being online. I think you're meaning that uh, you want, you consider the team members should feel, um, how do say that? Team members should have an emotional bond with each other. It doesn't mean that your work has to become your family, but there should be something that um, members should have a shared goal or shared identity. And as a leader, you should, um, it is your role to surface this. So mm -hmm. when we're writing, certain things are implicit and leaders need to be able to read, to go beyond the words that are said and actually trying to understand the, the assumption behind it and make them explicit. And for example, also point out, hey, you are, for example, you seem to be valuing through your communication style, you seem to be valuing honesty a lot and being very transparent about that. And then you have your team member, John, who gets annoyed at your 100% transparency because you're spending so much time explaining your why you're doing things and we are now having a backlog because of your um because of your high attachment towards transparency compared to john who wants to be very productive so as a team member you need to point out these these differences and i think that's a difficult skill because you need to your team needs to produce but you also need to make sure that there are relationships forming between the team members that go beyond let's produce what we have to produce. Yeah, I think it's an incredibly difficult, um, you know, outcome to achieve. And I mean, working together with people who are in the same office as you is, is difficult enough. Uh, maybe that's a completely different conversation, but I, I think when you have this dispersion situation, um, you are missing some of those key verbal cues. Uh, you're missing those opportunities to bond and form those deeper connections on, a, in, on an interpersonal level. And everyone has to, I think, work a little bit harder to make those relationships meaningful so that the team can be productive in the way that it needs to be. So how, given that we've talked a little bit about some of the problems that we know exist, how does data help us find our way through these problems and challenges? There are, um, there are two solutions. And I, uh, when I talk about them with my HR students, we always have a large, long discussion about ethics. One is that a machine analyzes the emotions of your messages, which means that somebody is reading, or at least a machine is reading everything that you write. Um, and then, often this creates the picture of big brother. Do we, do we want that? 
So for me, I always say, well, if the team wants it, it can be done. A manager cannot, I think, should not enforce this or on the team. It's um, on one side, yes, you are on company time. So whatever you write should be related to your job. But if a machine is reading everything that I write, somebody is having an input on, on everything that I do. So what does that mean for the trust that the company has on me? That's why I say the whole team needs to stand behind it. And once this is done, for example, you could easily see if there is, or you could quicker see, thanks to technology, if there's tension building up between team members because they're using words that sound more and more like angry words or like suppressed anger. The same way you could see joy building up or you can see when team members start connect with each other. There is, um, there's re research that shows that when somebody joins a team, they spend a lot of time not just reading the messages, but trying to analyze how do people write. And then over time, they are copying the writing styles. So they are copying, for example, what type of smileys you're using and when do you use the smiley. So these are the things that uh, um, technology can quicker see, oh, this person is getting more and more, feels more and more attached to the team because he or she is talking and writing like us. And the same way you can then see when somebody detaches or becomes disengaged from the team because they are again changing the way they're writing they're kind of starting to write differently than the rest of the team so that's one thing about the emotion emotional side about connecting the other is to simply look at who's talking to who so we are not looking at what is being said we're looking at the um, what i would call the communication web between team members and that will give you information about silos or will give you information about um, who is actually kind of an, an unsung hero in the team, who is holding the team together without it being the job of holding the team together. Because everybody, it's kind of a team has a, a team mother or a team father, like kind of somebody who's there to listen to your problems, but it's not their job. And that's an important person to have in the team as a kind of, emotional support role. So that's the second way I would suggest to technology can help to actually look at the communication web. So if we just go back to the, um, that's really fascinating by the way, and I, I think that there's a, a lot of value that is going to, to come out of this um, as you know, we become more comfortable with having this, the depth of analysis of our interactions with each other. Um, but in terms of the, the patterns of emotion, so actually looking at the words that are said or written, um, so are, are you currently as part of your sort of scope of study, are, are you working on um, some sort of AI that is already helping um, untangle these patterns and give some clarity or like where are we in sort of the evolution of, of this right now? So I'm focusing on the AI for the communication web simply because when I talk with HR manager I feel there is still a, a big resistance to analyzing the words. I know that there are a number of smaller European startups that are um, focusing on the text and focusing on for employee engagement. So I'm analyzing the emotion or I'm, I'm, they're analyzing the text on Slack. And then this is then fed into a dashboard 
which then shows if somebody um, is very collaborative or is angry, sad, and how they're feeling. I think there's value in it, but I also think that right now this is still, depending a bit on the region where you are living, there's still too much resistance in actually doing this. Yeah, and, and what about the cultural nuance of those types of interactions? Like you gave the example earlier of being very direct and, you know, having your one of your colleagues perhaps not respond as well to that. Um, how will the AI ultimately layer on that cultural nuance or can it do that? Because that's obviously a big part of how someone communicates, right? I mean, you might be very direct and almost... Um, detached in your communication style, but that's just because of your cultural upbringing. It's not because you're angry with the person for what they did yesterday. So how do we guard against um, reading into things that may not be situational, but rather cultural? I think the technology is not a problem. It will just need, like right now what happens is that um, there's a dictionary being created where you see, let's say words, and then people have to say, oh, this word has a positive emotion or a negative emotion or a neutral emotion. What needs to happen is that um, they say, okay, let's say, um, I was annoyed with you yesterday. Yeah, an American needs to say, okay, in this sentence, the word annoyed was a negative emotion. Dutch person say, well, this was neutral. It was annoyed. It wasn't angry. You know, it's uh, between angry and I'm very, very pissed off at you. So that needs to happen then that the, these dictionaries that are used for the, for the machine learning algorithm are being more refined. And I don't think this is right now happening. So there are dictionaries for the English language, for the Spanish language, but there are not dictionaries on how Spanish people are using the English language. Right. And what about the nonverbal cues that often accompany the spoken word? Like how do we account for that? Emicons. Smileys are the nonverbal cues in online dictionaries or in, in the online world, which I am very find very struggling because I overanalyze every smiley and trying to understand why <laughs> this smiley on it. Maybe I'm reading too much into the non-verbal online communication, or so it's. Um, but that's that's the way you try to express emotions or try to express more than words can say. But I don't think there is too much of an. Um, agreed way between human beings when do we use a smiley and I do again think this is again cultural dependent that some people would use or in some cultures you would use a particular smiley more often than like a grin or another face. Yeah it really is fascinating how emojis have really filled in our language and and have this uh, I feel way more weight than I ever expected them to in terms of being able to convey something. And uh, I've definitely come around to using them in my language and it's, uh, you know, <laughs> love them or hate them. They're there. They're part of, of our framework now. So we have to embrace them, I think. But from what you've, you've learned about, um, we've talked about the patterns of emotion. We've talked about who is talking to who and how data can help us surface how people are feeling and how people are contributing to their work. How can data actually help us produce that psychological safety for people at work that are, that are not physically in the same workspace as each other? So psychological safety would be 
the the confidence that I can tell you, for example, I'm not sure how to do this. I think I did a mistake, or in in, in any way or that being 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 frank about mistakes or uncertainty or also crazy ideas, because crazy ideas are also just things about like you know where did that came from and of course we can't do this this is absolutely out of the norm what, what you are suggesting there so psychological safety is the ability to show to your team members um in a way that you're different so how can data help us see this we doing simple surveys that's that will be a more non-obtrusive obtrusive way of finding out where is psychological safety in the team? So you would simply ask, there are standard questionnaires developed by Harvard Business Schools that can be like, so the standard questionnaires developed by Harvard Business Schools to measure psychological safety in the team. However, they are constructed in such a way that they manage it at the, that they measure it at a team level. What needs to happen is that it needs to be both down one level to the relationship. So I can feel psychological safe towards you, but not towards another shared, another team member that we have. So you will have to have survey questions that actually measure, um, do I feel confident to share crazy ideas with you? Do I feel confident that I, to tell you I screwed up? That's one way. The other way is again, to look at the text, to look at, what do we communicate with? So I mentioned before that I looked at the that I look at the communication work. So who's talking with who, and we can put a value to this communication. So we can, for example, say this is a very um, uh, emotional safe or psychological safe communication that that we're having. But we don't have just that same communication with another team member who's, you know, we are more direct with that team member, but we're not telling him or her our mistakes. So then again, we have to go to the words and then see, pick the right words that would measure psychological safety. And what role does the culture of an organization actually play in helping psychological safety be present to start with? And then obviously the degree to which people are able to connect with each other in a physical way, as well as in um, an interpersonal way. So, um, you know, we, we hinted earlier that we were going to tie in the piece around culture. And I just wanted to spend a couple of minutes probing the role of culture here um, alongside communication. So for the culture, how can, your first question was about culture and psych, psychological safety. I think any company that has as a value, honesty and transparency and lives that value, they are on the right way of creating a psychological safe work environment. Because if I can't be honest about what is going on in my head, then there is no, there's no safety. You know, if I have to check every time what I'm saying, we can just forget the psychological safety. So for that, um, culture is important. I do think that leaders have, um, if you say your value is honesty, but the leaders don't show that they're honest, you can just forget it. You can't have, you can't demand from team members to be honest and transparent. And then you yourself, you're not honest and transparent. So that's one thing. And then you mentioned the culture and connecting. Um, when you communicate with somebody, you'll find out at a certain moment, oh, we actually have a shared interest in, for example, baking. And that might not be a company culture, but it forms a shared identity. It's something that like our worlds meet there. 
And the same happens with company values. If we value um, work-life balance or working hard, then there's something that brings us together. And that, um, let's say, if we keep on, if we use the example of working hard, if I will then be on our Slack channel at uh, 8, 9 p.m. and say, you know, yeah, finally solved this problem. And I know you're also valuing working hard. You're going to be there and say, yeah, well done. And hopefully somebody who values work-life balance will jump in and say, yeah, no, turn off your computer. It's 8 p.m. at your place. So it's trying to figure out this sharedness that we have that creates, that is based on the cultural values. And once there's sharedness or a shared goal, a shared identity, then we start feeling like um, we're running the race together. Yeah, that's a really important component. And it's, it's really one of the reasons why Jostle exists and what we're trying to achieve with our technology. But, you know, I, th I think it is that sharedness. And I think that is extremely challenging for people who don't uh, see each other on a day-to-day -day basis and don't have that eye contact contract is what I like to call it. You know, that that ability to look into someone else's face and, and know how they're feeling or see how they're doing or share that experience together in person, right? So I think it is challenging more so um, for, for leaders, especially to rally teams along and bring people together, um, which is why, you know, I think in this day and age, we're, we have the technology that lets people stay connected. But what other ways are you seeing that culture is growing amongst people who are, who are remote other than using their, you know, their devices or their, their Slack or their intranet or whatever they use to stay connected? What are people doing to keep the culture alive? I think the, the big proponents of remote work, so the companies were very vocal about that, they're also all very vocal about their values because they realize that's, that, that's the thing that keeps everybody going. Um, and they do bring it alive by, for example, Buffer is a good example where they're talking on the blog about the values and how the values are lived in, in real life. That, that's, that's my issues with companies mentioning their values online. It's like, well, that's a nice text but how does it look in real life? And then if a company is able to, to describe, you know, in this situation, this team member show transparency or in helping somebody grow, then this makes the value alive. And I think there are, there are companies where they're also on Slack that they will point out if somebody is living a value by their work. And this way, reminding other people, you know, you know he or she just showed us, um, how to learn from somebody or, uh, you know, how to be a good leader, how to communicate clearly. So it's again, this being constantly aware that you need, to, it's about being constantly aware about, about your values and pointing out when does a value, when is a value clearly visible in the behavior so that it is a constant reminder to everybody, you know, this is something that we find important. And when we work and we should be working according to these values. So it's a team effort. Yeah, definitely. And to, you know, the point that you've made a few times around the importance of leaders, if you are going to build a dispersed company and you are going to have dispersed pe uh, people and teams, then you do need to invest in strong leadership and have a high leadership expectation 
because those people are going to be critical in helping grow your people and grow your business in all sorts of different places across the globe. So I think that, you know, we, we put a lot of emphasis on leadership um, here in our business, but I can only see how if you are not together every day, it's even more important that you have those ambassadors out there who are really responsible for championing uh, what you're trying to achieve in your business. So as we close here, um, is there anything you'd like to leave with us in terms of what companies that are dispersed or that are considering having more remote workers, like what's, what is perhaps some, the biggest pitfall that you're seeing that people should avoid when they're trying to build the productive teams that are remote? I think one pitfall is the assumption that um, it all depends on the technology, that once you have the technology in place, it will just work. Um, technology is always, I, I think, the easiest problem to solve. It's the people that, that are creating the big problems. So it's, yes, you need to have the right technology. But once you are working remotely, you need to show it to your employees that you trust them working remotely, that you, um, that you trust them to produce outcomes without having to look over their shoulder. And I know different people have different viewpoints that sometimes, you know, in order to earn trust, you know, you, are, you need to first earn trust. So that's why some people, companies use time trackers in order to make sure that the people are really working which might be a cultural thing, might be part of the company. But I think if you're now moving remotely, it's it, um, showing your employees that, for me, it is really showing your employees, yes, I trust that you are getting the work done and making it clear to them that if you get stuck, just email me or reach out to me in whatever form or way, you don't have to solve all the problems alone. Yeah, that's really great advice. And so what are you um, working on next that's uh, getting you excited about this, this topic? What's, what's next for you? Can I make first a point that, like you talked before about leadership, yeah. I'm talking about leadership skills. Please. And I have worked in business schools for quite some time and I've worked on a project on futurizing business schools, which turned out on having a focus on bringing some data science into the bachelor program in some way. And I do have my own issues with how it was done. Um, what is a constant discussion since I'm working in business schools for, you know, talking more than 10 years is we need to provide better leaders and we need to provide better problem solving skills and communication skills in um, business school graduates. And I think that most business schools are still not delivering it. And um, if remote work, and I think remote work will become more and more prevalent, this problem will just get bigger. And currently it's being pushed onto companies that companies need to train their technical people to become leaders. You, everybody's very good in the technical skills. But once an engineer moves to to a, into a managerial role, the skills that you need in order to be productive and do your job like good are completely different than when you were coding. So that's the point I wanted to make about education. And then it's, um, we can tie this back to communication that once, once you are in a company, you need to be able to pair up people 
not just to get their current work done, but to say, oh, you want to be a manager in three to five years. Well, I pair you up right now with somebody who's just making that, trans that transition so that you can learn from him or her about what does it require to transition from an individual contributor role to a, a managerial role. So the whole aspect about mentoring. Yeah, I think that's really critical. And I, the point you raise about the outputs out of business schools um, and the sort of tension that exists between their role versus the role of organizations in building and developing leaders is definitely contentious. And for me, as I look at the landscape of leadership, I just, I, I find it frustrating that we don't look at history and learn from you know, what, what has happened in the past around a certain brand of leadership and the types of organizations that that leadership style has created. And then asking ourselves whether that's the kind of leadership we want to take us into the future and the types of organizations that we need to exist in the future to help us sustain people and, and produce things that contribute to our economy. So for me, and I think that there is a lot of work being done um, academically around the theory of leadership. And I think that there definitely are, especially with, you know, the rise of tech companies and different styles of, of not only leading, but building companies. I think that that is changing the landscape of leadership. But I think where I see the biggest problem is it's at the individual level where people are, are not learning as they grow from being school going children into the working world around what it actually means to have a set of life skills that allows you to show up as a leader of something. And you don't have to have leader in your title to be a leader. So, you know, I, I think that what, what I'm maybe, maybe I'm reaching here, but I'm, I'm hearing from you that, um, you know, we need to fundamentally change something. And maybe it starts even before people hit the business school, right? It's, it's actually something that is a societal problem that we need to address. So I don't know, what are your closing thoughts on that? <laughs> if I make a closing thought about that, we're going to be here for another half an hour. <laughs> I, I do research on educational innovation. I have small kids. It's, it's a constant discussion I am having. So, but yes, it is a societal problem. And I'm going to close the education and topic with that. It needs to start before business schools. Um, but you asked me earlier on about what I work right now in the area of remote work and uh, communication and connecting people and what excites me about that area in the future. So what I do work right now is that I, I, I'm creating a dashboard that will provide managers with the information about how does a specific cultural value connect team members. And this goes back to what I said at the very beginning is that managers need to have data in order to make better people related decisions. And I know that there are companies that are providing uh, culture surveys and engagement surveys, and they're also about team skills and stuff like that. But I'm bringing it, I'm bringing the communication and the culture together because I believe it, if we don't have a shared culture, our communication will be impacted by that. So if I would just look at communication, I'll only see part of it. So I, we need to include the culture and we need to see really this cultural value drives team A forward, but they don't share the same values than team B. That's why we have a silo. And that's what I'm building right now. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I'd love to actually hear more about that um, offline, not necessarily during the interview here, but um, the work that you're doing is, is definitely 
very aligned with some of the things that I'm thinking about and, and actually some of the things that we're trying to achieve here at Jostle with our employee intranet that really the, the goal is for it to become that go-to place where people can be be present as themselves and have those open lines of communication and connection that also surfaces the quality and the texture of a culture at the same time. So, um, you know, we aren't going as far as you are in terms of being able to map how the values necessarily are manifested, but um, definitely I'm just really thrilled that you're doing this work and I think it's incredibly important work and would love to hear more and keep in touch as you progress. So good luck with, with your ongoing efforts. Thank you. Well, so thank you for being here with us today. If uh, any of our audience would like to reach you, what's the best way to do that? So I'm, um, like many others, I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is Katarina Bolesi, and then you can also find me on LinkedIn. Again, Katarina Bole Carbonell, you'll find me under my full name. And I do respond also on emails at katarina at netnigma.com. Um, of those, my preference would be for Twitter and, uh, and email. Okay, fantastic. Well, and we'll also share those coordinates in our show notes so that people can have access to them um, very quickly. And uh, yeah, just thank you for your time and, and appreciate the insights that you've shared and look forward to keeping in touch and hoping that we can both keep pushing forward on changing leadership and uh, work for the better for everyone out there. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a lo lovely com conversation. Yeah, it was really great to chat with you. Take care. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of People at Work. It would mean a lot to us if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. The more reviews we get, the more people discover the podcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe to ensure that you don't miss an episode. You can do this wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can reach me at bev at jostle.me or find me on LinkedIn. Until next time, take care. Thank you.